Welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. I'm Huma Gupta. And I'm Nir Shafir. Today we're welcoming onto the program Gwen Colasso. She's a PhD candidate at Harvard University in the Joint Program for Art History and Middle East Studies. She also works as the Visual Resources Librarian in Islamic Art and Architecture at Harvard. Uh, Gwen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Before we get into our topic, I do want to mention the song you all just heard. Probably that was a very exciting moment in podcast history. It was a little mix-up of the uh, theme music from Super Mario Brothers, the original from Nintendo, uh, and the song Uskudara Gider Ken, uh, or Katibim, the very famous song associated with late Ottoman Istanbul. That's produced by our friend uh, Kerimov, Kerimov Abi, who you can find on SoundCloud. Um, uh, and we've got a link to that song on the website. I actually found that song a while ago. It was posted on Facebook by my friend Mavja. And I really enjoyed that mix-up using um, something nostalgic from my childhood uh, to play on a song that evokes something nostalgic about uh, the city of Istanbul. I don't know if you if you reckon, if that brought up any memories for you, Nir. Yeah, it reminded me of uh, seeing Eartha Kitt perform that song in 1958 on... Uh... Oh, you were there. <laughs> you yeah. saw that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, so just another layer. It was a previous life time, yeah. but okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> yes, it's a song that's been played with a lot, um, uh, but there's always um, ways to have a new take on it. And I think the song goes well with uh, your topic today, Gwen, that we're talking about because we're taking a fresh look at um, a famous uh, visual artifact uh, uh, of the Ottoman period. Our topic is festivals and the waterfront in 18th century Istanbul. Uh, and a lot of our discussion will center around uh, the Surname, um, the the depiction of a circumcision festival from 1720s Istanbul, um, sort of created and, and directed by Levni, uh, the famous Ottoman painter. We'll get uh, into that in just a second. So this is um, one, our latest installment in our series, The Visual Past, uh, curated by Emily Newmar and Unver Rustem. Uh, and indeed, we do have a number of images on our website in a PDF where you guys can uh, follow some of the visuals we're going to refer to uh, in this podcast. So Gwen, let's start by talking about the historical context and production uh, of these visuals that we're looking at, these very colorful and animated depictions of celebrations in Ottoman Istanbul. Tell us about Levni and, and the Surname, what's been written and, and where it can take us. All right. Well, first of all, I'll explain what a Surname is, which is essentially a festival book. And the one we're talking about um, today is that of Levni, that, which was... Um, Originally done in the 1720s, after, mm -hmm. of course, the 1720 uh, Circumcision Festival. Right. And one of the things that many, many people have focused on in the Sorname, such as Essen Atil, um, as well as Nurhan Atasoy, are the 
processions, guild yeah. processions, and various um, various recreations and festivities that go on from games to spectacles such as uh, tightrope walkers and um, also various communities performing their crafts sure. um, all before the sultan. And what's interesting about the Levni manuscript is that for the first time, we see this festival taken uh, to the waterfront. Mm. Um, the other big example that this contrasts with is the 1582 Sornname, where it's just in front of um, Ibrahim Pasha's palace, ah. which is, of course, a very impressive site, but it doesn't offer the same degree of dynamism mm-hmm. that you see on the waterfront in terms of uh, variation in levels and uh, lighting and sound quality. All yeah. this completely transforms. And I think both the text by Vehbi and the images by Levni really capture uh, a lot of that movement uh, that is brought to this event. Very cool. I mean... Yes, people have used this to kind of see depictions, a colorful cross-section of Istanbul society, Mm -hmm. the larger city life around the palace and all the different peoples, you know, the guilds and the different types of cast of characters uh, we would find in Adam in Istanbul. But on the other hand, as you're saying, we can also see the transformation uh, of public life um, in Istanbul during the 18th century and and think about what it tells us about the broader ways in which... um, the imperial capital is, is changing at this time. Right. And part of what I wanted to do is bring the background to the forefront mm-hmm. um, so that no longer we're just looking at the waterfront as the space on which events take place, but really uh-huh. it's an active agent in creating these spectacles. And I think in part um, that's because the Ottoman state did want to use this as an opportunity to assert itself um on the city and its public spaces in a new way. Why? Why was the why did the waterfront become important in the first place? Why did the city and its places of leisure and the palaces kind of move to the coast of the Bosphorus to the Golden Horn? Can you just tell us, give us a bit of background about that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, in part because during this period, the Sultan well needed to reassert his. Uh, presence within the city, in part because during the latter half of the 17th century, he wasn't living in Istanbul. Mm. The family was living primarily in Adirne, Mm -hmm. where the previous uh, circumcision festival was. Mm -hmm. And so with with the rise of Ahmed III, he was brought back to Istanbul and also part of his his ascension required him to to make himself known to the people, um, in part to reestablish that relationship that didn't entirely exist. And that's really, I think, apparent in the public spaces, which by this period in the early 18th century had fallen into disrepair to some degree. And so one of the major projects that Ahmed III um, enacts when he comes back is uh, renovating these public spaces, making them usable again. And um, also many of... um, Many of the people in the court circles, like the friends of Damad Ibrahim Pasha, also participated in this, now starting to, for instance, um, host parties in their pavilions in this area. Mm-hmm. And so the state becomes very visible to the public in a new way during this period. And it only increases during the 18th century, which is what Shireen Hamide discusses in her book, The City's Pleasures. And... In my view, though, the 1720 festival is definitely 
almost an inauguration of this okay. because in the ye- couple of years prior to it, that's when a majority of these uh, renovations are occurring. So it does have a very uh, significant moment. Uh, it, it is a significant moment in these um, urban developments. And when you say urban development, is is there a broader um, restructuring of the city taking place? towards hmm. towards the waterfront is that you're saying towards the the golden horn and the bosphorus because a, a lot of the i mean most of what happens uh, in lefni Suriname, most mm-hmm. of what is depicted is not actually taking place in the you know inside the city walls right. of the imperial capital but mm-hmm. rather off in the distance often for example in oak Maidana right, with the exactly. display of archery these kind of um other parts of uh, of istanbul that today are associated with you know beolu and para right. and the 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 other side, as, as it's called in right. Ottoman nomenclature. Exactly. And it is making um, making the state known to that part of the city as yeah. well. A lot of this is in clear view, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right? And so what's interesting is that this period is also known as kind of the conquest of the Bosphorus. Uh-huh. And so in many ways, this is one large step in that. Mm-hmm. Um, because you could say that this very large public event has an effect on later public recreation Mm. during the 18th century, which we see in the later development of the area and uh, the opening up of uh, pleasure gardens like Sadabad shortly after. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, on that note, and and building on sort of my my previous question, I mean, as you said, this spectacle is taking place in plain view of uh, the European inhabitants, Mm -hmm. so to speak, of... uh, of Ottoman Istanbul, the people who live in that other side, Venetians and and people from de- various trading communities. Right. Um, one of the things that I think is very interesting about the paper you showed us is that you offered some images of uh, similar uh, water festivals uh, in Venice mm-hmm. and in Europe during the early modern period. Um, do you see uh, the spectacle is also speaking to that audience, to Ooh, a, yeah. a trans-imperial audience, let's say? Yeah, definitely. And I think one of the reasons why I wanted to work on this was that I wanted to put the Sorname in a more comparative context and how looking at how it fits into a wider, I guess you could call it Baroque theater. Uh-huh. Um, and you could say, too, that it is a response in part to some dealings that uh, the Ottoman Empire had had. Um, with the Venetians. For instance, this happens very shortly after the Treaty of Pasarovitz, mm-hmm. um, where the Venetians lost Moria. And funny enough, mm-hmm. during that treaty, the, as kind of a con- the concession gift, they had given the Ottomans a set of very sumptuous, beautiful mirrors that were put in uh, Ainala Kavak Palace, which is where many of the nighttime festivities occurred, or at least in front of this particular palace mm-hmm. in the water. In many ways, it is kind of a, a slight subtle reference to that, but also we have to think about who the Ottomans were interacting with, mm-hmm. and not only in a diplomatic sense, but also in a social um, in a social sense as well. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the relationship between Istanbul and Venice has been well established. Yeah, but just to bring out how it works on a performance level, we know, for instance, that. A, as early as, say, the 16th century, uh, the Venetians were hiring Turkish acrobats um, to perform in mm. their own festivals that included many of the um, many of the floating theaters uh, that pop up in Venice. And in fact, I think in one of the images that I had brought up, you can actually see um, one tightrope walker um, 
descending from a tower onto a ship. And not to say that this is one of the Turkish ones mentioned in the payment registers, but it does kind of show how these particular types of individuals fit into this larger festival landscape. And um, was there a direct borrowing between the Ottomans and the Venetians in terms of the idea of um, the floating stage? I mean, I do think there is an awareness of it Mm -hmm. because we do know that the Ottomans were well aware of developments in, say, Venetian opera because in the 1675 uh, Circumcision Festival, the uh, sultan had even requested that um, a Venetian opera troupe come and perform. While that didn't come to fruition, I think it's an important point in noting that they were very keenly aware of what were the um, popular and in vogue types of entertainments mm-hmm. these other societies were using. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you kind of referenced Baroque aesthetics a, a couple of times. Right. And indeed, the very artist Levni, mm-hmm. who, who depicts the Suriname, is often associated with this kind of Ottoman Baroque mm-hmm. uh, period, the tulip era and all of the aesthetics that come with it. And I, I like how you situ- situate that art in a larger context of, of performance, of theater, right. uh, yeah. of, the, of the water spectacles. Very fascinating uh, way of framing it. Gwen, I was wondering if you could also elaborate a bit about um, the sacred political and mythological interpretation of waterfront festivities as a comparative link between the Venetian and Mm. the um, Ottoman festivities. Right. I mean, they both use that sacred and mythological link in very different ways. Um, For instance, to... Look at the Ottoman instance. We see that Vefbi in his text does reference how the incredible uh, display of fireworks for him brings up these references to, say, Abraham being thrown into the Chaldean fire or um, just other senses of uh, divine wonderment in that sense. But also, he connects it as well to local mythology about how you see all of these creatures that are talked about, say, um, relating to the local myth of Istanbul, these peris that, you know, in, in other um, manuscripts, like, for instance, in Evliya Chalabi's work mentions how the golden horn was known to have these sprites that would come and perhaps... Uh, grab at the arms or legs of swimmers and try and drag them Mm. down. And so by putting these types of automata on top of the water, I think it does in many ways bring up these both um, local and also, yes, Quranic uh, references to myth and religion. Um, On the Venetian side, they're working with a, a very different paradigm, but it's really in some ways resonant um for them though they're organizing their theaters their floating theaters as a type of reference to a neoplatonic cosmology Mm. and so it's kind of like the world floating in the universe when you look at it from above and that's kind of how they're organizing it and as when you look Mm. at the the uh the shows and the stages themselves many of them are references to local popular myths in this instance from the classical Pantheon. Mm-hmm. For instance, in, there's one case I can think of from uh, the late 17th century 
from a ceremony that was done for Ernst August, the um, Prince Bishop of Osnabrück. And in that case, you have an entire floating stage that's in the shape of Proteus. Um, and so, and on him, you have Venus performing, a, an opera singer, of course, who mm-hmm. is singing an aria. And then another singer. And you have to imagine the massive size of this particular stage, though. In that instance, you have another singer in the head of Proteus stationed up there singing through uh, his mouth to give the illusion of a larger-than-life type of uh, mythological figure performing. And so there are all of these different references. And I think part of it is to try and make it relatable to the audience that it's being performed for. Um, So though they're using very different, I think, sets of um, source material, I think they're both doing it for a similar purpose. Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Nir Shafir, and I'm with Huma Gupta and Chris Graydon. And we're talking to Gwen Kalasso about water festivities, Istanbul, the theater, in the early 18th century. And I'd like to remind our listeners that this is part of our Visual Past of the Ottoman Empire series. Uh, and if you go to our website, you can find more episodes about the art history of the uh, Ottoman Empire. So, Gwen... I think you've given us a lovely image of um, this interaction between the Venetians and the Ottomans, and you use this term Baroque theater. Um, and I was just wondering, could you expand on that? What did what did theater actually mean mm. in the Ottoman case? Because so often what we imagine as theater, and especially early modern theater, theater didn't really exist mm-hmm. uh, as sure, such yeah. in the Ottoman case. Like, you know, you have maybe shadow puppets, mm-hmm. but kind of the notion of a stage, the notion of a play and a performance, and that... These sorts of things, um, you know, often don't come to mind. Uh, right. So, kind of, what what did theater mean? Uh, mm. You know, you mentioned that kind of the Sultan asked for an opera troupe to perform. <laughs> yes. Uh, how would a stage have looked like, and what did a what a, uh, what came to mind when people in the late seventeenth, early eighteenth century thought of theater? Right. That's a great question because I think, particularly during this period, it's a bit. It's a bit uh, more of a fluid concept because especially when you're talking about Baroque theater Mm -hmm. in terms of the technical aspects like staging and uh, acoustics and all of that, many times it can incorporate the natural world. I mean, we can think of, say, French Baroque gardens and how performances were held there. Or to bring in another example from Europe, you have, say, um, in 1717, Handel performing his Wasser music on the River Thames, mm-hmm. which you know is very much another interpretation of what a theatrical stage could be. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of actual plays, we know that in the Sornome we have an example of what we can consider at least some kind of play or vignette. It is some sort of confrontation between two men while another group stand and watch while a woman is to the side. And so we do have some kind of dialogue going on here as well as musical accompaniment. Mm -hmm. And so while we don't know from the text 
what say the author is of this particular work right. or what exactly uh, the overall plot is from the text. We know that there is some kind of relationship being portrayed between a Kashkari beauty and her lover. Um, and from the image, we can tell that, okay, so we know that they are experimenting with some kind of um, scene and narrative work concerning Ottomans and Safavids, for mm -hmm. instance. Oh. Um, and so that's one example of what theater could be in this period. But it doesn't just have to be plays. And I think right. that um, the use of automata is one way of implying narratives without necessarily going into a full script. Mm -hmm. Because in many ways you are alluding to stories because you don't have time on a floating stage, in this case, for instance, to fully flesh out an entire uh, three-act play. Yeah. And this kind of goes back to the use of mythology. You're using stories that people know yeah. so that, you know, you can trigger that particular uh, memory and storyline so that people can say, oh, okay, yeah, I recognize that. Huh. Oh, yeah, I love that story and all of that. So um, this does give this particular manuscript gives us a pretty good image of how this the water itself is manipulated as a stage and is also in subsequent decades where you still see musicians performing on rafts uh, going down the Bosphorus. And so this is really continued. Um, and it also occurred before as well, because the waterfront, again, is a very popular public space where you yeah. do have the room and audience space for people to sit. And you do have the proper acoustics for sound to carry. Gwen, one of the most compelling kind of um, parts of um, your study were, was this kind of focus on the acoustic um, in addition to the visual mm -hmm. aspects. So you're talking about order, disorder. You're talking about the ebb and flow of water, right. kind of these uh, combinations of different um, elements, movement. You're also talking about the physics of um, sound as it refracts in water and how it travels mm -hmm. in day versus night. Um, I thought this was really compelling. I was wondering if you could um, share with our listeners a bit more about this. Right, right. Um, that's a great question because it's, one of the most interesting parts about uh, the festival, in part because we see these really unique floating stages um, that we haven't really seen before. And what's interesting is that they attempt to play on the effects that water naturally brings to a performance. For instance, mm -hmm. when you have theatrical performances of both um, some sort of plays, uh, which Levni, or Vehbi, the author of the text, does not go into in great deal, but we see how performers are taking advantage of this with um, enormous automata, for instance, monstrous creatures that um, are meant to attack one another, and these roars you can imagine coming from these creatures um, are emanated by mm. the water, um, unlike what you would see in, say, a hard surface where you have a much uh, more stunted effect. Here it echoes, and moreover... Um, is it splashing and stuff? Is that what you're saying? There's splashing, but also in water, um, it creates an otherworldly effect. Mm. For instance, we all know that when we're in... Um, when we are in a swimming pool, for instance, sounds right. are, travel quite differently. Yeah, And that's in part because of the way that sound plays against water rather than a hard surface. Mm -hmm. And it allows it to travel very far, but it also causes a, a degree of 
distortion, mm. which makes everything seem a little bit off from your normal sense of perception. I see. And likewise, when you have fireworks that are being uh, that are, are being shot uh, during these events, you see the water itself acting as a reflective surface that multiplies. Um, exponentially the effect of these same fireworks that you would see on land. Also, there's a a safety element to it as well, since you don't want these fireworks falling on wooden houses. And in fact, there are some rather disastrous moments from previous Ornames Uh that they did not want to repeat. For instance, in like the 1675 festival, uh, one of the Jewish... (laughs) Uh, pyrotechnicians accidentally shoots a rocket into the, the lap of a Kislerasa. And so no one wants to repeat these kinds sure. of events. And so you want to have a spectacle that, one, uh, has a magnified effect, but is far enough away from important features like flammable buildings mm-hmm. and hopefully, two um, spectators, although people do go on the water. But I would like to think that the water itself would... Uh, soften the effects of sure. any accidental burns and so in, in this you know you've, you've described sort of the 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 water sports and, and theater on the water the, the fireworks of course which are amplified they're more dazzling on the water and this whole issue of safety presumably all of these kind of acrobatics that are taking place mm-hmm. above the water i mean the water i mean somehow they make them more daring more more um um I don't know, nautical, but at the same time, if you fall in the water, perhaps maybe right. <laughs> it's a little less dangerous. So. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, we definitely see new feats of engineering. For instance, the famous image from the Sorname is that image of uh, the carriage being drawn on a, a tightrope, for instance, right. from one ship to another. We have this in the PDF. There's a there's a there's right. a woman, a lady, a, a well-to-do lady seated <laughs> inside this carriage. Right, <laughs> and so you kind of wonder, okay, well, would they have done this if, for instance, it had actually threatened the life of that woman who presumably, we don't mm-hmm. know, is not uh, a performer. Though we do have tightrope walkers, of course, in 1582. Sure, yeah. It's pretty clear that these are trained acrobats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, just to follow up on some of these, uh, this, this theme of the acoustic, mm-hmm. I'm wondering as an art historian, there's a premium on ocular interpretation of manuscript you know, um, illustrations. And mm. how do you, I mean, in one of our images, you can see there's these boats filled with musicians right. and singers. Right. And you yeah. mentioned that, and you mentioned also this quality of the, the siren, the amorous sirens oh, in the water, yes. which is really beautiful. But as an art historian, I think the oral, you know, as a potential way of how the sound is maybe interplaying mm. with the water, did, did that uh, come up as you were looking at some of these? Images. Let's see. That is a great question. And in terms of the aura aspect, or at least the audio aspect, um, I mean, you can get a sense of it, I think, when you address the text. And then when you bring that to the image, mm-hmm. it does illuminate that a bit. I mean, for instance, Vefi talks about how in many ways it was a situation that would cause people to spin around in bewilderment, both from the sounds and the sights. Um, I think the favorite uh, quote that I can think of is how people start spinning about like a pigeon roasting on a, a skewer um, <laughs> out of you know, the wonder of the situation. I'm getting hungry. Right, right. <laughs> um, 
so you get a sense of that. In the images themselves, I think what it does do, though, is capture the degree of movement that um, occurred throughout these events. Sure. For instance, the use of silver, not necessarily in the Levney manuscript, but in the other 1720 manuscript that I bring up. Um, you see you see how the water can reflect and kind of capture the experiential aspects of uh, being on the waterfront and also just capture in general the the wonder of mm-hmm. that particular moment, even though, yes, it is done not only through the visual, but through the audio. Another, I think, interesting question is about the urban soundscape. So yeah. you mentioned a lot about how um, in the 18th century, this integration of land and sea is really oh, critical. Yes. But I'm wondering also the soundscapes of the land and sea and how they're being integrated. So, for instance, um, you're talking about how this is a potential moment for different classes to mix together. Right. However, uh, I think you mentioned that the waterfront is maybe a place where oh, yeah. um, the classes don't mix, and yet the sound can travel far. Yeah, well, I mean, the waterfront, even before this period, had been a pretty significant public space where there were music performances at these mesures or teferujgas where people would go and have picnics and parties. Um, and, you know, these could be attended by anyone. But what's interesting is that the state brought its presence to these places in a way that hadn't really been done before. And true, they are bringing this uh, this entertainment and music spectacle to the city in a way that one, yes, will reverberate across the water. But also the fact that these rafts are moving, they're not stationary, they are going throughout the entire city, bringing this visual uh, manifestation of its presence mm-hmm. through um, the major waterways of uh, Istanbul. And so what you see is, yes, it's bringing, you can hear the presence of this particular uh, ceremony coming towards you. And you also get a sense of invitation for the entire city to participate in this p- particular event. And yeah, it, it's an interesting tactic on the part of uh, the Ottoman state. All right, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton, Huma Gupta, and Nir Shafir here talking with Gwen Colasso about her research on festivals uh, and the waterfront in 18th century Istanbul. So, in kind of earlier studies of the Suriname and the mm-hmm. kind of Suriname as spectacle, uh, Derin Terziolu has suggested that, uh, you know, that the Suriname and all the in these kind of month-long festivities can almost be seen as a sort of carnival that can mm-hmm. be read in different ways. That there's this carnival, that there's this uh, official world, the kind of and the kind of the reverse of that, mm. uh, in which the popular classes are, you know, um, get to reinterpret and replay different types of power relations. Do we get a sense of that in this kind of seventeen twenty uh, Suriname with mm. Levni? Um, you know, how do we 
I guess, get at the sort of audience experience of all these spectacles and maybe kind of the social significance of them? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, obviously, my own work has certainly built upon uh, Darren Terziolu's studies. And obviously, I agree with her uh, concerning the carnivalesque aspects, which, of course, you know, harken back to yeah. Bakhtian interpretations yeah. of Venetian carnival. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is an important aspect of this However, in some ways, it's often hard to find the popular experience because of the text and the source itself. This is a manuscript made for the royal family. Right. Mm-hmm. It is told from the perspective that is meant to appeal to them. Um, however, despite that, I think that we can find references to the popular experience within it. For instance, Vefby talks about the crowds and crowds. Actually, no, he uses the word waves because he wants it to kind of parallel the waters. Mm -hmm. These waves of spectators Mm -hmm. that come and uh, participate in these events. And we do see individuals on these particular um, contraptions that are uh, displayed upon rafts like Ferris wheels and swings and boats of people um, clamoring to see these types of of spectacles, which are separated by what we believe are oarsmen or guards of right. certain types with these red caps. So we can definitely tell how, um, still at that point, the official um, the official government is keeping an eye on the entire event, though this event certainly is not just for them. Mm-hmm. The text itself refers to how these stages were not stationary and they followed one another so we know that it's not something that's just playing out before the Ainulokavak palace right. it's something that uh, did go in front of many of these public spaces the same spaces that locals um, were using for uh, their own personal entertainments their own picnics their yeah. own leisure so it's in many ways bringing um, a state-sponsored spectacle to public spaces of recreation mm-hmm. that they uh, use on a far more regular basis. And as I like to think, it helps in normalizing the use of these spaces, not only by mm-hmm. the public, but also the elite. You know, when you were talking about um, the participatory aspects of the festival, I was reminded of a document I found at the Ottoman Archives from the Education Ministry during a much later period, but it was about these carousels, mm. these um, traveling carousels where, where the, you know, they would set up, they would erect sort of mini carnivals in neighborhoods of Istanbul yeah, yeah. during the, the Bayrams and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And, and the document was actually about how uh, these were a bad thing because... <laughs> um, Uh, children would ride on these carousels and sort of the carnies who were operating them would sing dirty songs to them. Not only sing dirty songs to them, but actually (laughs) uh, distribute leaflets with lyrics of the songs that the students who are literate because they're school children (laughs) could pass around to each other and they they had like sort of risque lyrics. I didn't get access to the lyrics, but um, (laughs) uh, the education ministry was certainly um, disturbed by the transgressive... um, aspect of this carnival uh, uh, behavior within which even children uh, were sort of robustly participating. Well, it's funny that you mentioned these carnivals and uh, carnival rides, Ferris wheels and swings, as well as the dirty lyrics that accompany it, because um, shortly following the 1720 festival, we see the establishment of so many 
uh, waterfront amusement parks. I think the ones of Demad Ibrahim Pasha become particularly uh, popular uh, and not necessarily for good reasons because um, there are many critics such as Shemdani Zadeh who would discuss how many naughty things would occur there. Women going to these public spaces who should not have been going to these public spaces claiming that they had, you know, public permission because it's uh, uh, the sultan or his Mm -hmm. viziers there. So clearly it's an event that they should go to. But at these events, they're going on uh, swings and going up so high that you can see their underwear and then they're jumping off these swings and then into the arms of young men who catch them. Mm. So yeah, it really does kind of... (laughs) The setting of the carnival really does bring out um, a certain disregard for normal rules of society, which is what made these types of spaces so incredibly dangerous Mm -hmm. to some, but also incredibly appealing to others, Mm -hmm. which uh, in many ways uh, describes why in the 1730s, uh, revolt, these were some of the first things to be destroyed. Ah, I see. Yeah. Yes. Ferris wheel is the downfall of civilization. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, but I mean, you know, thinking more broadly about how we can use these sources on, yeah. on celebrations and feasts, it's an, that's an interesting place where we see uh, how transgression actually magnifies uh, s- social views, political ideologies, mm-hmm. and, and cultural values, and as they're in transformation, uh, in in a, a state of contestation. Uh, and I really want to thank you for coming <laughs> and sharing your research on this uh, very subject with us today, and hope that it will be um, further inspiration for our listeners who are maybe interested in studying uh, similar topics. Well, thank you so much for having me on. <laughs> thank you, Gwen. And I, I wanted to ask you. You know, I know this is a paper you wrote, and that you're actually your dissertation research is all also focused on art history, but in another uh, sector of, of the, uh, uh, you know, Ottoman art world. Would you like to say a, a few words about your uh, ongoing dissertation? Yeah, project? sure. Um, well, my own dissertation project will also focus on trying to bring out uh, the popular experience in yeah. terms of um, the creation of certain manuscripts, such as Ottoman costume albums, mm. and how they were catered both to yes, a local populace, but also uh, travelers that were coming to the Ottoman Empire. And in fact, many of these costume albums that we uh, still can look at today exist in European collections, but Mm -hmm. haven't really been dealt with in a very systematic way or Mm -hmm. treated as whole objects. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to look at, one, why were these various albums created and compiled? Um, And how are they used in other forms of cultural translation? For instance, are they being used um, to adapt fashions in the 18th and 19th century Turkey movement? Or do we see uh, similarities between uh, these costume albums and costumes that are then created for um, theater in Europe concerning the Ottoman Empire? Mm-hmm. So how are they reinterpreting these products that were made by um, Ottoman hands to perhaps insert a very different interpretation of that society upon them. Yeah. Well, that sounds like uh, fun and fascinating work. 
Uh, I look forward to discussing it with you uh, in maybe a few years down the road if the yeah. podcast and we all still exist, we can, exactly. we can have that conversation. Uh, but on that note, I think we can um, conclude our conversation uh, for the day. Thanks one last time, Gwen, for coming on. No, thank you. Thank you, Huma and Nir, my dear thank Nir. Thank you for, for having pleasure me. Joining us on the po- Always a pleasure to have you on the podcast, Nir. Uh, I want to thank our <laughs> listeners for tuning in, um, joining us in, in another installment of our series on the visual past. Uh, I want to invite you to our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you can find our past and future episodes in that series. Also, check out the visuals and the bibliography uh, for today's episode. I also want to invite you all to join us on Facebook and whatever social media we are currently engaged in. Uh, Get in touch with the more than 20,000 followers we have on Facebook and get a little conversation going about um, our content as well as keep track of uh, future content uh, on our page. That's all for this episode. Thank you for joining us. I invite you to join us in our next episode. And until then, take care.